We'll start. Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds at the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it up, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She called his name Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priests of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughter, Where is he? Why did you leave this man? Invite him to share a meal. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. Our New Testament reading is from John. I apologize, it's a little long one, but it's a great story. So, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although it's not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samarian city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, 
everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those that drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks as such as those to worship him. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman and no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to him, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who has sent me, and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around, and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I had done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there another two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. So we are again uh, continuing our study in Exodus. And over the last few weeks, as we've been studying this book, a theme has emerged centering on this theme of power. Uh, Specifically, we have seen how Pharaoh and God represent two different conceptions for power. God uses power to bring life to bring abundance and flourishing into the world, whereas Pharaoh uses power to exploit, oppress, and even to bring death. We have also seen how Pharaoh's conception of power has been part of a recurring pattern that is found throughout the biblical story and can be seen not just among the Egyptians, but the Israelites as well. And last week, our sermon centered on how to break out of that vicious cycle. And we saw in the story of Judah how his self-sacrifice pointed a way out of that vicious cycle. So as we look at our passage today, 
uh, we are now introduced to the central figure of the book of Exodus, uh, Moses, the one who will lead the Hebrews out of slavery and to a new conception of what it means to relate to God and one another. No other person until Jesus will be as significant in the story of, Bible, of the Bible as Moses. In fact, Moses' name is the most common name in the Old Testament. And here we are uh, just uh, beginning to learn about Moses. And we're given a few hints as to his destiny, which the Bible does artfully to kind of keep us in uh, suspense. uh, Because we want to see what kind of leader is this Moses going to be. And the question we are forced to ask is how will Moses project power, the power that's given to him, into the world? So let us look at this text and see what this passage is trying to tell us about Moses. Now, the first thing we learn is that Moses is saved from Pharaoh's order to drown all male Israelite children in the Nile. Moses' mother saves him by building a floating basket that is eventually recovered by Pharaoh's own daughter, who has compassion on the baby and raises Moses as her own. However, even in a crazy plot twist, she pays Moses' actual mother to take care of him as Moses grows up. But what I want to do is I want to point out a few other details about this episode. So first, this basket that Moses is placed in uh, is called a teva, which is actually a really rare word in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only found in one other place in the Bible. And no surprise, let's guess what book it might be. Kate, what book would you guess? Genesis. Genesis. Yes, Genesis. Teva is the word that the Genesis uh, uses for the ark, is in the Noah's Ark story. And so what this detail is signaling to us is that Moses is a kind of Noah figure, someone who's going to uh, save uh, the world through water. Now, interestingly, the text also links uh, Moses' birth with another couple of ancient stories. So it turns out that Moses is not the only baby that's placed in a basket and saved from certain death and ends up in a high position. Uh, There's actually an Egyptian myth that is very, very similar. So in this myth, the god of fertility, the Egyptian god of fertility, who's Osiris, has a child with his wife Isis, and the child's name is Horus. Uh, Osiris will be killed by his evil brother Seth, who's kind of like the the devil god of Egypt. He represents uh, the forces of chaos and death. But Isis saves her son Horus by hiding him in a basket of reeds. Very similar. Significantly, Horus is the god of kingship and is associated with the pharaohs. So if you're reading the story from the Egyptian standpoint, Moses would actually be sharing similarities with Horus and would be associated with the pharaohs. That means that the pharaoh from the Exodus passages is representing Seth, who's the bad guy god, who's the evil god of death. So Moses' story does more than just uh, explain how he's saved from uh, the uh, pharaoh's edict. It also is subverting this foundational Egyptian myth. Now, that's not the only story, though. There's also another similar story that was also very famous in the ancient world. Uh, The story is uh, from a different part of the world, but it's pretty widespread. Uh, So Sargon of Akkad, who, if you remember back to, you know, history class, was the founder of the first empire in the ancient Near East, sometime around 2300 B.C. in Sumer. 
And the story goes that Sargon was the illegitimate son of a priestess, which apparently was a no-no. And so Sargon was born in secret uh, so he wouldn't be killed. And his mother saved Sargon by placing the baby in a basket made of reeds and sealed with bitumen. Exactly the same as in her story. Uh, Sargon's going to actually be saved by the goddess Ishtar, and he's going to be made a king of a city called Kish. So again, remarkably similar to this Moses story. And, and what is going on with these similar stories is that what the text wants us to know is it wants us to compare Moses' birth and think of him in terms of both the Pharaoh and Sargon. Uh, so both Pharaoh and Sargon are these great leaders. And the, the idea is that Moses is going to be a great leader as well. However, what we are going to learn is that Moses' leadership is going to be very different than other uh, tyrants, such as Pharaoh and Sargon. Again, uh, this goes back to our theme about power and how it's used. Moses is going to end up being less of a conqueror and more of a shepherd. So we learn that Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh, and that as Moses grows up, we are told about two separate incidences in his early life. First, Moses observes an Egyptian beating one of the Israelites. And Moses at this time is apparently aware of his Israelite heritage because the text actually describes the man as one of his brothers. So he sees this connection to this man that is being beaten by the Egyptian. Uh, Moses uh, checks the scene to make sure he's unobserved. And then he kills the Egyptian, even finding a sandy area to bury the Egyptian in and hide the evidence. Later, Moses finds two Israelites fighting with one another, and he steps in to mediate. One of the men will have none of it and demands to know what gives Moses the right to judge the dispute between them, since he has no authority. And also, significantly, goes on to reveal the fact that he knows that Moses has murdered an Egyptian. Uh, At this point, Moses has realized that if this man knows that he killed an Egyptian, everybody must know that he killed an Egyptian, and he's in trouble. And it turns out that Pharaoh also knows about this, and so Moses is forced to flee for his life. And so he goes to the nearest wilderness area, devoid of Egyptian presence and lacking extradition laws, called Midian. Uh, We suspect that Midian uh, lies somewhere uh, in northwestern Saudi Arabia. But in any event... Uh, After fleeing Egypt, we come to the second story that occurs during Moses' formative years. This incident involves a group of seven daughters of a priest. Now, it's unclear uh, which god this priest is representing. We don't really know. Uh, But the Midianites were descendants of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. So it's very possible that this priest, uh, Reuel, is uh, a priest of Yahweh, the same God that Moses worshipped. At any event, these daughters are accosted at a well by shepherds. The shepherds uh, had cleverly set their ambush. They waited until the women had drawn the water and filled their troughs. So they knew that they would be tired and vulnerable. And so uh, fortunately, it was fortunate that Moses was there. Uh, He saves the women from the shepherds and he even helps water their flock. And so in this story, this time, Moses is a hero. 
Moses' heroism is communicated to uh, the father of the daughters. And uh, interestingly, you probably noticed this, the daughters identify Moses as uh, an Egyptian. Uh, I suspect it's because uh, he walked like one. All right. Anyway, after dining with the father, Moses gains a wife and even a son named Gershom. So we have another life-changing event in the story of Moses. Now, as you probably have already started to notice, these two stories uh, have a lot of similarities. In both stories, what we have is Moses responding to some sort of act of oppression. However, the outcomes are completely different. In the first story, uh, Moses kills the Egyptian overseer. The outcome is completely negative. Moses doesn't earn the respect of his fellow Israelites, and he is forced to flee Egypt. Uh, This failure on Moses' part is highlighted by the fact that almost everything uh, that the Israelites have done before this episode has been an unprecedented success. So Pharaoh tries to oppress them. They grow stronger. Pharaoh tries to kill the babies. The midwives save them. Pharaoh tries to drown the babies in the Nile. Moses' mother hides him. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and has compassion on him and adopts uh, him as her son. So we have this whole string where everything's coming up Israelite. And then all of a sudden, we have our first failure. Uh, So it's only here that we have a setback. Now, in the second story, though, Moses again is reacting to oppression. He sees oppression in the acts. But this time, Moses is successful. Moses ends up making friends with this priest of Midian. He's invited to a party, and he even ends up with a wife and son because of what he does. So, uh, since you listen to me uh, do sermons quite a bit, you probably started to figure out these uh, two stories are purposely placed back-to-back like this. The author has, has done this on purpose. This is a common biblical literary technique in which two similar stories are juxtaposed to one another uh, so that we can read them in relation to the other. And so, and Exodus does this because what it wants us to do is it's kind of cleverly luring us in uh, to a close reading because what the, what the author wants us to figure out is why these two similar stories have such different outcomes. So it's a, it's a really neat way to uh, engage the listener with the story. So why do these two stories have such different outcomes? Uh, both, uh, in both stories, Moses is concerned with this idea of justice. However, in the story of the Egyptian, let's look at that. Notice the Egyptian overseer is striking the Hebrew. That's the word that's used there, striking. And Moses responds also by striking. But, uh, but in order, um, it, it is only after, he only does this after uh, he sees that no one's watching him, right? He, he, he then hides the body. He kills him and hides the body. In other words, uh, there's some premeditation going on here. Uh, Moses has come up with a has seen this happen. He's seen the Egyptians strike. He comes up with a plan. The plan involves uh, secrecy, and it involves even a convenient place to dispose of the evidence. Uh, we we don't know that the Egyptian was striking the Hebrew to kill him. Uh, it, but later, we, we, but we do know that Moses does kill the Egyptian. And later, one of the Hebrews is going to actually use the specific Hebrew word for kill to describe what Moses did. So in other words, the, the, the Egyptian struck 
but Moses killed. So furthermore, as uh, the, the Hebrew will point out, Moses has no authority to do this. Moses is not a judge. There's no due process here. There's no trial. Moses simply takes it upon himself to kill the Egyptian. So Moses exercises justice in this case, but it's vigilante justice and it's excessive. You know, he's basically Batman, I guess. Uh, But if we look at the second story, okay, in Midian, we find that the details are very different. Here, the shepherds drive the woman away, but Moses saves them. The word saves here, interestingly, is the same Hebrew word uh, that we derive the name like Joshua or Jesus from, okay? Moses doesn't kill the shepherds in an act of vengeance. He saves the women. And notice that that saves the women where it shifts the emphasis on. Uh, uh, Moses' action is not about the shepherds, but it's about the women. Uh, The text says Moses saves the women, not Moses lays the smack down on the shepherds. And also interesting to note is in the first story, uh, the first story I mentioned may note that the Hebrew that the Egyptian was striking was his brother. Okay, so it it seems like the the rationale for Moses to save the uh, Hebrew was because he was his brother. But here in this second story, he saves the Midianite women, even though he has no particular connection to them. He just sees women being oppressed. Uh, He doesn't say, like, they're my sisters or something like that. So what we have here with with this Texas setup is two different ways of performing justice. One way is a failure and one way is successful. And what we learn from the successful uh, episode is that justice is, is, first of all, about the care for the suffering one, uh, regardless of that person's origin or connection. In addition, we see that this justice is measured. It's appropriate to the crime, which shows concern not just for the victor, but for the offender. And like I said, the focus of this justice is is first and foremost on the sufferer and the concern for that person's protection and well-being. It's about bringing life, flourishing, and abundance to the oppressed more than depriving life from the oppressor. Remember, again, these two ideas of power. God's power brings life, abundance, and, and fertility. Pharaoh's idea is to bring oppression, violence, and death. And so if we look at the two different ideas or these two different stories, we're seeing how the power is being played out differently. One is displaying Pharaoh's, one is displaying God's. So we also have this question throughout this passage of Moses' identity. Who is Moses? Even Moses' name is really complicated. The daughter of Pharaoh names him Moses and and provides an explanation for that name based on the Hebrew meaning of Moses, which is weird. Why is it weird? Because she's an Egyptian. How does she know Hebrew? Um, And even weirder, Moses is actually an Egyptian name. It's a common Egyptian name. It means son. So, for example, you've probably heard, you know, some pharaohs and names in your time. So the pharaoh Tutmos, that's Tutmosis. He's the son of Tut. The pharaoh Amoses, son of Ah. So, so Moses is like this really common Egyptian name. And even the explanation that Pharaoh's daughter gives in Hebrew is problematic. 
She says his name, he, she names him Moses because I drew him out of the water. And that's actually not the correct translation of the Hebrew word Moshe. So even if like it's possible Pharaoh's daughter knew some Hebrew, she wasn't very good at it. Because Moshe in Hebrew means the one who draws out, not I draw out. It's the person who's drawing out. So, for example, if we look at Psalms uh, 18, verse 16, which was from our call to worship today, uh, it says, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the water. That's the word Moshe there. Um, In other words, Moses' name means that he is the one who draws others out of the water. Certainly meant to be a foreshadowing of Moses' role in the Exodus. But the point, though, is Moses kind of has two identities here. He's kind of schizophrenic. He's got an Egyptian name and he, uh, that identifies him as a son. And he's got a Hebrew name that identifies him as one who draws others out of the water. <clears throat> and the text is even playing with this idea of Moses' identity. It goes back and forth. In verse 6, Pharaoh's daughter calls him a Hebrew child. In verse 11, Moses calls the Hebrew man his brother. However, in verse 14, Moses is rejected by a Hebrew. And then in verse 19, the Midianite women call him an Egyptian. Even Moses seems unsure of his identity. We see that uh, when Moses gives the name Gershom to his son, Moses explains the name because I have been a stranger residing in a foreign land. Moses doesn't belong in Egypt with the Egyptians or the Israelites. And he doesn't belong in Midian either. His identity is an open question. So, what do we do with all this? So, you know, again, what we're doing is we're seeing examining, um, Exodus examining this issue of power. And the two stories uh, that this question that's being asked here is who is Moses going to be? What is his identity? How is he going to use his power? Will he be the Egyptian using his power to bring about vengeance resulting in death? Or will he choose a different path? And last week, I I kept talking about power following the cycle of violence. In the cycle of violence, nothing changes other than the names. That's what is happening uh, with Moses' exercise of power in the first story. Moses' act of retributive justice is going to do nothing to break that cycle. It's just another example of those with power doing what they wish for their own team. Yet, we see a way forward in the second story. Here, Moses reflects God's own grace, love, and mercy. Moses defends the oppressed, but Moses' justice is focused on concern for the women rather than punishing the shepherds. Moses' justice is measured. Moses exercises judgment not for a particular side, not for a particular team, but because he sees oppression. And the result is inclusion, where fellowship is established by Moses. The result is, again, life and fertility, as Moses now has a wife and a son. Now, we could totally conclude this sermon right here, but there's one other point I want to make. Uh, Notice that as we read this chapter, the events with the Midianite women take place at a well, okay? And they result in Moses' marriage to Zipporah. So it turns out, that we find very similar stories, uh, uh, similar to this uh, episode at the well at Midian, 
And you're never going to guess where we find these stories. What book do we find these stories in, Kate? And what would you guess? Genesis. Genesis, that's right. In Genesis, there's this stories of, uh, of a, these stories of Isaac and, and Jacob, and they both have a scene in which their future wives, they meet their future wives in a well. Apparently in the ancient world, uh, wells were basically the dating apps of the time. <laughs> And um, we call these similar stories that follow this pattern, we call them uh, in the biz, we call them a type scene. And a type scene is a story with similar features and it alerts the reader to what's going on, to what we might expect. In all of these events, these three stories, Jacob and Isaac and Moses at the well share similar features. So, you know, we do this all the time. Like, think about when we watch a movie. Like, you might watch this movie, and music starts playing, and the main character begins to engage in repetitive, challenging activities over and over again. And so we know we're watching a training montage. We see that type scene in movies quite a bit. Uh, well, in this well-type scene, uh, we typically have the, the, the same features. We have a man traveling to a foreign country. The man encounters a woman at a well. Someone draws water. There's an obstacle that must be overcome. The man reveals his identity. News is shared about the visitor. The visitor is treated to hospitality and a meal. And the man and the woman are married. And when you come across a type scene, the key is to notice where that scene deviates from the pattern. When one of the characteristics is left off, then you better believe the reason it's left off is significant. For example, in Isaac's story, it's not Isaac that goes to the well. It's rather one of his father's servants that does. And this actually gives us a clue as to Isaac's character in Genesis. Throughout Genesis, he is one who other, where others act and he is acted upon. He's a passive character in Genesis for the most part. So in our story in Exodus, the missing element is the revelation of the identity. Moses never reveals his identity to the woman. And when they go home, they just uh, refer to him as the Egyptian. And we've already discussed the question of Moses' identity is a really important one in our story. And that's why this, uh, this uh, characteristic of the type scene is left out. What I want us to do now, though, is to look at the New Testament reading, or New Testament reading from John chapter 4. So for all of those here who are keeping score at home, you have probably already started to notice, your brains are probably already turning, and you're beginning to see the connection of this passage, of of Moses' Midian well scene, with the passage in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling to a foreign country. The passage begins by telling us that Jesus leaves Judea and goes to Samaria. He meets a woman at a well. There's talk about drawing water. Jesus reveals his identity. The woman shares the news about the visitor, and the Samaritan community asks Jesus to stay with them. Hospitality. So anyone who listened to the story of the Samaritan woman at the well and hears these key features would expect this story to follow this well type scene. However, because they know how to read type scenes, they would notice the deviation. Uh, Most strikingly, what you've all noticed is no marriage takes place. Uh, There's a bit of discussion about marriage and the question of the woman's husband, but no marriage. Also, no water is drunk. Though, again, there's discussion about uh, water and particularly this living water. And so those features are the significant one. When we read this story, we notice that, that, that they're missing or they're altered, and that's what we're supposed to focus on. 
And so when we read this story, Jesus' whole point to the woman is that she needs something more than water. The answer to her problem is living water, which is the ultimate blessing of life, fertility, and abundance and results from the Holy Spirit. Hey, that sounds like stuff we've been talking about all along here. And that's what Jesus is coming to the world to offer. The woman in this story lives a broken life, and she needs something more than water from a well. Uh, now, usually, you know, it's interesting. This is one of these totally interesting stories. Usually we read this story and we read about the multiple husbands and we start like automatically thinking this woman must uh, have loose morals and, uh, you know, there must be some kind of sexual impropriety. It's actually not that clear in this story. Uh, the text tells us she's had five husbands. There's lots of reasons she could have done that. Uh, you know, people died like really young and often back then. Uh, so it's not necessarily that she could have been widowed. Uh, also, she could have been divorced. Uh, uh, she, it's possible she was infertile. And if she couldn't produce a child, uh, you know, I mean, like, what good were you as a woman in the ancient world back then? I mean, unfortunately, that's how people saw it. Uh, not Jesus, though. Uh, Jesus never actually uh, accuses her of any kind of sin or causes to repentance. And Jesus is actually not really shy about doing that. But he never uh, accuses her of anything wrong here. Uh, it talks about the man she's living with. That could have actually just been a relative who was charged with uh, taking care of her. Um, but the, I think the important thing is, you know, we need to not necessarily read this text through that grid. What we need to see is, you know, again, this is a woman who's broken. She needs a husband. Uh, but again, the story shows her that Jesus does this uh, not uh, in the way we would expect, just like with the water. Uh, Jesus doesn't marry her as we would expect. Uh, now, as I mentioned earlier, the well type scene usually has an obstacle that must be overcome. In Isaac's story, the obstacle is finding the appropriate wife for Isaac. In Jacob's story, it's a giant stone that's in front of the well. In Moses' story, it's the shepherds that are harassing the, the Midianite women. <clears throat> now, at first, it can seem like there's no obstacle in this story with the Samaritan woman. However, there's actually quite a large one. Samaritans were totally despised by Jews. Samaritans were uh, those that were left behind during the Babylonian conquest, and they intermarried with other racial groups, and that called their Jewish heritage into a question. Uh, they also worshipped at a non-sanctioned temple on uh, Mount Gerizim, and they only considered the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Holy Scripture. So they were very different from the Jews that Jesus associated with. So for theological and ethnic reasons, Samaritans were totally rejected by most of the Jewish people. Uh, believe it or not, there's actually still Samaritans. In fact, at last count, there were 874 of them left, uh, at, and they all live near Mount Gerizim. Now, the ethnic and theological divide here is why everyone from the woman herself to the disciples are so surprised that Jesus is talking to her. It was bringing so many taboos, yet this is the longest extended conversation Jesus has with anyone in the Gospel of John. Jesus engages her in like theological discourse. I mean, they talk about a lot of stuff. They talk about like eschatology and like proper worship, you know? Uh, and she approaches Jesus with the most pressing uh, theological issue, uh, the difficulty between that was, was really dividing their respective faiths. How do you worship God? Do you worship God in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? 
And Jesus shares with her a new future in which such issues will dissolve as all those who worship God are invited who worship God in spirit and truth. Obstacle overcome. What the woman has realized, though, is that um, Jews and Samaritans can now both be part of the kingdom, united by the Messiah, who the Samaritan now realizes is Jesus. So overwhelmed is she with this message of acceptance and this realization that Messiah is now here, that she shares this news with her entire community. Meanwhile, the disciples are worried about food. While Jesus explains to them that the woman, they cannot believe he's talking to, is actually doing all the hard work. She's doing the labor. The Samaritan woman in this story is an evangelist. She is being presented here as kind of like the ideal disciple. A lot better than those 12 guys he's been hanging out with. Uh, And so in the Samaritan woman's story, we see that the kingdom of God is advanced. And what we are doing here is we are experiencing yet another picture about how power is exercised in God's kingdom. Here, the woman, despite her background, finds inclusion with Jesus. Prejudice and taboos or obstacles have been overcome. Here, Jesus' concern is not for uh, Team Judea or for Team Samaria, but it's rather for the woman herself who is broken. Spirit and truth are the only requirements now. Here, life, fertility, and abundance have come to the people of Samaria, and together the entire community rejoices. The Messiah has come, and he's proclaimed all things to us. Let us pray for wisdom to exercise our power in the world like Jesus.